when Arthur Kleinman, an eminent Harvard psychiatrist, medical anthropologist, and an expert on the subject of caregiving, began caring for his wife, Joan, he found just how far the act of caregiving extended beyond the boundaries of medicine. Caregiving is long, hard, unglamorous work, at moments joyous, more often tedious, sometimes agonizing, but it is always rich in meaning. In the face of our current political indifference and the crisis of burnout and dissatisfaction with our healthcare system, Dr. Kleinman emphasizes how we must ask uncomfortable questions of ourselves and of our doctors. He feels we need a moral movement of family caregivers to demand what we need to become even better caregivers than we already are. Welcome to Fading Memories, a supportive podcast for those of us caring for a loved one with memory loss. Welcome back to Fading Memories. I hope you guys had a fantastic last week. Are you following us on social media? If you're not, you definitely should. I post things daily, helpful information, cute dog photos, and more. Also, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube page, Fading Memories Podcast. I post specific bonus content on YouTube that you will not get anywhere else. Enough of the sales pitch. Now let's get on to the show. With me on the podcast today is Arthur Kleinman. He is a medical doctor, in amongst other things, which I will let him explain. And he has written the book, A Soul of Care. And I've been very excited to talk to him because I think as caregivers, we all know that sometimes dealing with the medical profession is more frustrating than it is positive. So thanks for joining me. Sure. So tell, tell us about your medical career, your background a little bit so that people have a better understanding of where you're coming from. Right. Well, I'm a uh, psychiatrist and an anthropologist, both, and professor of both at Harvard, where I've been for 43 years. And um, my entire career has focused on uh, caregiving, illness experiences, caregiving. And I've done lots of research, both in the United States and abroad, particularly in China. And um, my collaborator for much of this research was my late wife, Joan Kleinman, who uh, died of early onset atypical Alzheimer's disease. And I was her family carer for about 10 years before she died. And, okay. And basically you could boil everything down to the following, that I had spent decades studying care, care systems, caregiving, every aspect of it and actually doing a lot of clinical care myself. And yet I felt a veil of ignorance was removed from my eyes when I took care of Joan as a family carer. And I saw the care system, I saw illness experience, I saw the very acts of caregiving differently, very differently than I had as a researcher and as a clinician. And um, also, I had a series of experiences that made me re realize that not only do we have a crisis of finance in healthcare, uh, we have a crisis of caregiving in healthcare. And in yes, we do. Yeah. And so that, I think that's the background. The book, itself, okay. the book itself, The Soul of Care, is based on uh, the combination of what I learned over the course of my career in caregiving and the poignant particularities of the story I tell about caring for Joan. Terrific. So it appears from your writing, you've always seen care somewhat differently than many doctors. And do you attribute that to the experiences you had during your training? Well, I don't know, you know, if I see care differently than, than doctors. I may see care differently than some doctors today. I don't think I see it very differently from when I was trained in the 1960s or um, how I did care. 
I think that what's happened is a combination of big business and big government has fundamentally changed not just the system of care, but what care itself is about. And uh, when I started, it was characteristic for doctors to get to know their patients very well, to take a careful social history, to learn about the family and work context of illness, and to uh, explain carefully, to think through things with patients and families. And today, all of that has been, if not erased, um, limited by the uh, enormous changes in the structure of care uh, in our system. So how do you feel the structure has changed? Obviously, you don't think it's changed for the better, and I don't know how any rational person could think it has changed for the better. Right. Well, part of the structural change in care has been that, um, you know, we don't have any, we've never had any direct measures of the quality of care, yet we use the term very widely. We, we provide, every institution says, we seek to provide high quality care, but we don't measure. What we have come to measure um, is institutional efficiencies. That is how efficient a hospital or a clinic is. And those efficiencies really are not about uh, caregiving. So caregiving at its heart is about uh, a number of things. It's about the quality of the relationship, the acknowledgement and affirmation of the other person as deserving respect and attention. It's about the quality of the communication, your ability to listen, to hear, to respond, to explain, etc. We don't measure any of these things. And in fact, just so we don't get into an idea of that there was a golden age that we've come out of, we never measured any of these things. So in a sense, we we really have never effectively enumerated what the quality of care is. And indeed, from my perspective, it would be impossible to quantify it because it's such a human experience. You have to look at it with... uh, in a qualitative way. And so caregiving is really about the the quality of the relationship, the presence of the caregivers and the care recipients. That is their fullness, their being there, just the way you and I are are together right now and not mechanically and not sort of, well, I want to get this over with, let's get on to something else, but the fullness of our our being together. It's about... um, the quality, as I mentioned, of our communication. Communication is absolutely fundamental to caregiving. And it is also about um, ritual. And in, in, uh, in family care especially, in order to keep going, we ritualize our activities every day. So when I was taking care of my wife, as she progressively went down ill, we would work out in the morning as long as she was able to work out, I would, she would take a bath, then I had to bathe her, then I had to wash her, then I had to dress her, then I had to feed her. And we would organize our day in what really was a, a ritual. And that ritual keeps you going. It's that every day is not sort of discovering this over again and trying to do it anew. It's that you get into a certain mode of doing. And that's the, uh, the caring. The caregiving is real is the doing. It's when I'm doing something with you. And the same with a physician. It's when the physician talks to you. The physician puts her hand on your shoulder and says, you know, there's something I got to tell you about this test you just took. That you recognize that there is a connection being made there. That connection is the basis for sharing information, for partnering around what's going to happen. But the sense you get, well, God, at least this person is with me in this and I don't feel isolated or alone. So that's that was the way I thought of care uh, in the past and it was revivified when I did the care for my with my wife. But what I hadn't appreciated is the difficulty that families have vis-a-vis the healthcare system and health professionals. Now I'm not the first person to talk about this but I feel that it is still understated, 
and, and not attended to, to the degree it should. So we know a lot of things today. And there's actually a very good report from the National Academy of Medicine called Families Caring for an Aging America that documents all these problems. But characteristically today, you get a patient who has, let's say, a gallbladder procedure, a surgical procedure to remove the gallbladder. They would have been in the hospital in the past for two weeks and have had time for the family to get to customer things and the patient to get customer things. But now, because of the emphasis on cost-effectiveness, they're shoved out of the hospital after three or four days. And when they get home, the family is going to provide the care because this person is in bed, unable to do a lot of things for themselves. And the family has never been told, why are there tubes coming out of my uh, uh, husband's side? What do those tubes do? They're called drains. I'm, I'm hesitant to bathe them, or help them bathe, because will they get infected, et cetera? So simple things like that are not being explained. And the reason for that is so little time is spent actually with the patients. So a lot of time is spent in the operating room, and a lot of time is spent in front of computers. But actually talking to patients and talking to families today is something that has become less and less of the work of doctoring. And that's what I'm very concerned about, because that work of doctoring is the care unit. That's the care unit. So I'll tell you an amazing thing about medicine today, that young doctors in medicine today are so unconfident about the quality of their physical exam compared to laboratory tests and x-rays and other uh, electronic assessments that often they hardly do a physical exam. They're losing the skill of the physical exam. Well, well, first of all, that's a, a bad thing to lose because it tells us important things. But if you think about it, it's the physical exam that is the hands-on part of care with the doctor. It's when the doctor is palpating your abdomen, percussing your chest, listening to your heart, that you get the sense of that connection that's been the, the ancient connection of doctors and patients, okay? This is probably basic to what placebo responses are. We wanna have good outcomes. Just the very nature of this response is meaning being transferred into physiology better physiological responses. But the important thing is, this is the moment of contact. This is where you get the sense, I'm with you. I'm with you in this. You're not alone. You're not isolated, okay? The, all of that is getting lost today. And uh, similarly with the, as I mentioned, with the quality of communication. So what we're ending up with, basically, I mean, it's sad to even have to represent this idea, Basically, you know, it's getting closer and closer to what happens when your Honda breaks down and you take it to a Honda mechanic in a garage and he starts fiddling with it. You don't expect him to say to the Honda, how you doing? Or, or put his hand on the Honda and, and show that he's, he's there with it, okay? You expect him to diagnose the problem, get it done, okay? And then explain it to you. What did you do? And... What's going to happen now? Is it going to be the same Honda I drove before, or is it going to be is it going to be different? Well, medicine is moving in that in that direction, and I think that's a very very sad uh, thing to say. And when you when I say it, and I've said it at many many medical schools, no one accepts it because no one will accept the idea that we are losing care, but we are. And the sad oh, thing is, if I can just go one second further before you, you raise your question. The sad thing is, it's not just in medicine that we're losing care. We're losing care in families. Now, how is that? How, is, how are we losing care in families? Well, first of all, if you think about it today, no one's home. Okay, so an elderly person moves in with uh, daughter and, and husband. The grandchild or children are out uh, at school. The husband and wife both work. The elderly person is there by themselves. They feel isolated. They feel um, uh, that they may literally be isolated 
by inability to move around very well, mobility problems. And it's in that kind of setting that you can raise the question, this family wants to take care of their elderly person, elderly member, but how do they do it when no one's there, okay? And I think that that's one of the problems. So for example, in, in my care for my wife, I was greatly benefited by the fact that we had long-term care insurance. Most Americans do not have long-term care insurance. Long-term care insurance will pay for a number of things. It pays for a home health aide who can uh, give respite care to the caregiver. So the caregiver, family caregiver doesn't become overwhelmed. It can pay for a lot of those things that support caregiving that otherwise are not available. And so if you were, you and I were right now speaking in Tokyo or in Helsinki or in Copenhagen or in Oslo, in those Scandinavian and Japanese societies, we would have long-term care insurance as part of our uh, healthcare package in national health insurance. And we would also have access to lots of other help. So a social worker, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, all those kinds of supports that become critical with disability and chronicity, we don't have them available uh, unless you're in the hospital or your healthcare plan is a very, very good one. And so my, my own feeling is that, that we're in a circumstance now, not, not only of a chaotic, broken healthcare system, but in which families themselves are having increasing difficulty caring for their own, even when they want to do that. And so there are certain kinds of issues that come out of this. One is that we have to revivify caregiving in medical education, do a much better job of it. Secondly, we have to reinvent the incentive structure of our healthcare system so that when well-trained physicians and nurses get out of their uh, training, they are incentivized to give good health care, which they're not today. All the incentives run the other way. Third, we have to think, and I think this is the most profound and difficult uh, uh, imagining, as it were, we have to think of a future in which families are supported, in which family care is seen as important enough that it's compensated. Right now, most family cares and most are women give uncompensated care as if care didn't matter, okay? We're not supporting it in any way. Well, think of it this way. 70% of the elderly in our society either live on their own or live with families. If there were a 10% change in that, that is 10% of the elderly stopped being able to live at home or with their family members, it would overwhelm all institutions in the United States, nursing homes, cognitive care units, uh, assisted living, hospitals, okay? So families are doing, they're the glue of society. They're doing the hard work and yet they're unappreciated and unsupported. There's an amen. <laughs> I love my mom's neurologist because she does spend a lot more time with us and not just my mom, but both of us, which has to be a bit of a challenge. My mom is very advanced Alzheimer's. She just turned 77. And, you know, you can ask her a question and I basically have to pitch, you know, I have to throw in whether or not that's a hundred percent fiction or there might be some basis in truth or, you know, it's, you know, it's his, it's funny sometimes because, you know, I have to clarify what she's saying, but the neurologist seems to move seamlessly between the two of us. And sometimes I'm not sure she's paying attention to me and I'll, I'll say something and then she'll acknowledge me kind of without looking at me. So I know that she's paying attention to what I'm saying, but she's giving mom her full attention physically. And from what you said a minute ago, it sounds like that physical touch looking at you in the eye might have a little bit of a placebo effect on, I was 
I was listened to, I was paid attention to. So I feel like my problem, whatever it is, is going to get better. And that, that I never thought of that. Well, even now the only, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. No, but even if you take away the placebo effect, it's going to have a psychological and moral effect on you. It's going to remoralize you. It's going to boost your confidence, okay, to make you feel a little better. Um, it doesn't take away the problem. You have a very unusual neurologist, let me tell you. If there's one field, one field in my view that has failed not just families but patients, it's neurology. Now, this is a discipline, an incredibly important discipline, that emphasizes and rightly so, making the correct diagnosis of disorders like stroke, um, ALS, multiple sclerosis, Parkinsonism, all the neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's disease, and using the few medications that are available for them. But once those few medications have been used, it's a field that by and large forgets about aftercare. So that your neurologist, I think, is special in that she's sticking with your mother, following her closely, and speaking to her. On the other hand, if we wanted to increase the effectiveness of your neurologist, we could say she should also be looking at you because you're bearing much of the burden of caring for your mother. And it's going to be with you that she's going to be able to figure out a treatment plan or, or a way of a proceeding that is more helpful rather than, rather than uh, uh, difficult. And I think that she coming to terms with the fact that families are critical in a situation like Alzheimer's is very important. Here's the image I have of Alzheimer's. It's um, an image I had from my own uh, taking care of a family with Alzheimer's. You have an elderly father who's in his 80s. His cognitive capacity is so withered, he is at such a loss that if you ask him, are you in pain or suffering? He'll say, no, I'm okay. But if you look at the adult children, his children, who are taking care of him, they're depressed, they're anxious, they're in pain and suffering. So, the, so in Alzheimer's, the suffering is between the patient and the family. And in taking care of it, you can't just take care of the patient. You've got to take care of the family and the interaction with the patient. And again, I would say that we're, we're really stuck for people who do that. I don't see it happening most of them in neurology. Geriatrics does a fine job here, but there are very few geriatricians in the United States. Very few. And not that many people are going into the, into the field. Okay, Geriatric psychiatrists can, can play a role here. But again, they're few in number on the ground. And so what we need, it, it really doesn't matter so much who the person is. It could be a neurologist. It could be a primary care physician. It could be a geriatrician. Okay, could be a nurse practitioner. But they have to be deeply involved in the case. Their presence has to be brought forward, not just a mechanical thing. And they have to be involved with you, the family member, as much as with the patient. And there has to be an honest assessment of what you need. So, for example, <laughs> let me give you an example for me. I was in the odd position of having been a professor at Harvard Medical School, one of the best medical schools in the world, for decades. And my friends were some of the neurologists who were making the diagnosis of Joan, my, wife, my late wife, with her early onset Alzheimer's. And they would have done anything to make that diagnosis as early as possible and as correctly as possible. And they did a, a great job. But as soon as the diagnosis was over, their interest and indeed their knowledge uh, was absent. No one told me early on, boy, you know, in this problem, Arthur, you should now begin to think about that at some stage you're going to need a home health aid. Think about where you're going to find that kind of person. You may have to go through certain trials to find the right person. 
and the like, begin to think about that. Now, the, secondly, my wife had atypical Alzheimer's. It began at the back of the brain in the occipital lobe, so she was blind before she was demented, okay? That before she was cognitively impaired. Again, no one told me, you know, you're going to have someone who's becoming blind very quickly. Um, it's not like she was blind since birth and can adapt to an environment. You're going to have to make some fundamental changes in the way your house is organized just so she can get around sa safely to protect her, etc. Nobody said anything, anything like that. I had to discover that hidden miss through accidents. So we were at my son's house once early in the course of my wife's career. And because of her visual problem and her cognitive problem, she mistook the door to the basement for something else and fell down a flight of stairs, okay? breaking, Ouch. breaking her pelvis. Oh, no. Okay, yes. So um, you see that in some sense would have been avoidable had we been attending to the, the, these issues appropriately. And the same thing with so many other problems in Alzheimer's. One of the big problems that I didn't have to face because of my wife's blindness, she wasn't wandering. Many people with Alzheimer's wander and get lost. I recently read about a case in China in which a, uh, a man with Alzheimer's disease got lost for one month in the city of Shanghai. Okay, oh his family was able to find him. It's a, a terrible experience uh, for everyone involved. You have to think about how you're going to be able to handle this experience. Now, you know, there are some simple things to think about. Does the person keep a, uh, a cell phone that has a GPS in it? If there is, you can track them, which is very important. And there are many other kinds of things I can go into. I'm not going to go into details. But all of these things should be uh, laid on the table early with patients and families in partnerships with, uh, with caregivers, professional caregivers. And you should be preparing for how you're going to do this. Alzheimer's is an enormous burden, as you know, on family members. It is a burden of time, of energy. It's a burden of uh, anxiety and depression. It's a burden of absence of, uh, of uh, time out unless you get respite care uh, to help you. All of these things you've got to prepare for uh, uh, over time. And by and large, the healthcare system fails in getting you prepared, prepared for this. I found Alzheimer's in my wife uh, to be um, the most difficult thing in my life to work with. I felt it was at times as if I were trying to endure the unendurable. So, so difficult was it. And what kept me going was the fact that my wife had cared for me for 36 years. And now I was simply taking over and doing for her what a lot of what she had done for me. And the recognition of that was my sense of an emotional and moral responsibility to her. The quality of the relationship is so important. In relations that are strained and difficult, it's very much more uh, complicated to keep going with, with care. And so my sense is that we often ask the wrong questions and look at the wrong results. We hear psychologists and people in healthcare systems constantly talking about resilience, okay? I think resilience is a Hollywood term, not a everyday reality. In reality, none of us are resilient. What we're doing is we're trying to endure, to keep going, to overcome, okay? And I think that that's a daily phenomenon that we have to work hard at and we want to know how do you do that? How, what keeps you going? And I tried in my book, The Soul of Care, to lay out what it is that keeps us going. And not just kept, kept me going, but kept dozens of family members 
who I spoke to about their experiences with patients, elderly patients with dementia. And so I think in a way, this shouldn't be coming out of the blue in a podcast between us. It should be something that medicine has attended to and nursing has attended to and that has started right away when the diagnosis is being made. So you get a referral to a social worker or to a team of caregivers who can help you with this. Now, see, that's another aspect of the destructive nature of our healthcare system. One of my areas of expertise as a clinician and as a researcher was chronic pain. I took care of hundreds of chronic pain patients and worked at one time in my career at one of the nation's great pain clinics. We had, in the 1970s and 80s, uh, care teams in pain centers that involved surgeons, internists, psychiatrists, nurses, physical therapists, social workers. They were literally destroyed, those care teams, by the um, pharmaceutical industry, big pharma, which came in and said, look, we've got drugs for you. And here's one, for example, OxyContin, which if you take it, it doesn't, it doesn't addict you, which was nonsense. doesn't addict you, and it's a miracle cure. Your pain will go away, okay? And faced with those kinds of uh, claims and, and the like, healthcare systems said, well, why should we pay for healthcare teams when we can get a miracle drug that makes this? So they stopped paying for care teams. And those care teams, those, those teams uh, evaporated. And in their place, we got the opioid epidemic, okay? And I think you could look in, in every area of medicine and see where the incentives we've developed, the structure of care we've used, has gone directly against what's needed for caregiving. And so I think it's time for a moral movement for family care. I agree. And I think we need to figure out exactly how to do that. There's no sense, you know, we, we can go on and on complaining and pointing to what the problems are. And I see, you know, it's like I'm reading every single day about things that are similar to what's in my book. It, it's critical to be able to now say, okay, how do we use this knowledge of what's wrong in order to do something that's right? right? And that's what we know. We know now what is right what needs to be done. It's a matter of waking up policymakers, getting the right policies, redistributing finances so funds go not to administration of healthcare systems, but the actual doing of care, and emphasizing the quality of care over things like cost-effectiveness and bureaucratic efficiency. It's the quality of care that we should be emphasizing when you have a disorder like Alzheimer's, in which we're, we have no effective treatments, and caregiving is what uh, everyone is going to have to do, we want high-quality care. And what I've already explained to you is that we don't even have the measures for high-quality care. We've got to emphasize those human relationships that are central to care, and we've got to pay for them. We've got to pay for them. So how would you go about implementing a quantitative measuring of care? Because as we all know, everybody with Alzheimer's is different. Right. And people with living with Alzheimer's are different than people with Parkinson's or people with cancer. Right. That sounds like a heavy lift. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the first thing I would do is I would recognize that the measurement of the quality of care is going to be a measurement of communication, of relationships, et cetera. And a lot of that is going to be qualitative, not quantitative. And we have, we have very good ways of doing qualitative measures, and those should be taken seriously. Secondly, I think we know enough now to say that certain things are crucial. Home health aids, absolutely crucial. Okay, Everyone who is taking care of someone with serious dementia at home requires a home health aid. May differ on how many hours they need a home health aid, et cetera, 
but they need a home health aide. And so, you know, there's no argument, it seems to me, about this. What there is an argument about is that the insurance companies don't want to provide long-term care insurance, which would pay for home health aides, because they don't make money. They're the kinds of money they, they want to make off of this, off of this. So that's part of what a moral movement of family caregivers has to argue for and say, we need a different structure to healthcare. We need different kinds of financing. And I think that the essence of this comes down to the following, that it is the human element in care that is the most important. And right now, that's where we're least invested. That's the most threatened aspect of it. So this is not, I don't get political on this podcast because everybody has different opinions on things, but I'm very torn this being an election year on the candidates' various plans for fixing our healthcare system. As a self-employed person, every month when we fork out $1,500 to have health insurance and we don't use it because we're healthy, and another month goes by, now we've spent 3000 now we've spent 12000 you know, it's just, there's only a return on investment if I get sick. And I work very hard not to get sick because right. I don't want to end up like my mom. Right. On the others, but so I like Medicare for all and a nonprofit system for healthcare for that reason. But then I look at my mom and what she really truly needs. She needs somebody to go to her not expect me to drag the, her to various doctors who have zero clue how to handle her. And I think, wow, you know, we got a Medicare for all. And boom, these people are going to bankrupt the nation. So do you have an opinion on which direction well, we should yeah. move as a nation? I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to offer an opinion on what kind of healthcare system we have. But I think even if we have Medicare for all, it's not going to bankrupt the nation. Because by and large, it's not going to pay for these things. Okay, that's probably true. It's not pay for this, so we need a different kind of healthcare. We need a healthcare, whether it's Medicare for all, whether it's a national health system, whether it's private insurance, that says the purpose of healthcare insurance is to pay for caregiving, quality caregiving. That's what we're going to emphasize: quality caregiving. And I think no one, as far as I can see, is saying that. So I, my expectation is, no matter what kind of system we have, unless we change the incentives, unless we look at the issues I've raised there, and I don't see anyone talking about these things. I don't either. It doesn't matter what kind of financial financing system we have. We're going to have a financing system that is going to be disregarding what caregiving is about. And I think that that's where our emphasis should be. It should be quality care is what this is about. That's where we begin. What is quality care? How do we get it? And then afterward, we raise the issue, how do you pay for this? What are the structures? But begin with the quality care. And that's exactly what we're not doing. So my feeling is I'm not optimistic about any of the plans. <laughs> because I think that unless we begin to think through these things in detail, we're not going to be successful. So here's one way of doing that. I just told you that long-term care insurance is absolutely critical. Everyone should have this, okay? Whatever that plan is, whether it's a private plan or a governmental plan, it must have long-term care insurance as part of it. Okay? And I'll give you the financial realities of this. So I'm a physician. I'm reasonably well off. In the last, I took care of my wife for 10 years. In the last nine months of her illness, she had to go into a cognitive care unit nursing home, a very, a very wonderful one uh, uh, in Massachusetts. And um, she had long-term care insurance, as I do. And that paid for the, toward those last nine months, that paid $50,000. I paid in those last months, in addition to that 50000 paid by John Hancock, I paid 150000 because those nine months cost $200,000. Now, I had the wherewithal to pay for that. 
Most people do not have the wherewithal to pay for anything like that. Therefore, they're willing to accept much lower levels of care. And when I looked at nursing homes with my two adult kids, and the three of us went and looked at nursing homes for my, my wife, I found this the most difficult part of Alzheimer's, making a decision about her having to go into a nursing home. Terrible decision. But we looked at about 22 or 24 nursing homes in our area, in the area of Boston and Cambridge, Massachusetts. And um, I say that uh, 16 of them were totally unacceptable, totally unacceptable. But they would have had to be acceptable for me if I didn't have the wherewithal to pay for something else. So the, 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 the sad thing about our system right now, and it's a you know, comment on American life generally, is that there is a social inequality in the quality of care. If you can pay for better quality of care, you're gonna get it. If you can't, you're not gonna get it. That's an unacceptable, it's, that is morally, and I think politically unacceptable. Quality care has gotta be the name of the game that every American has access to. But we don't begin with the issue of caregiving as a central problem. We begin with the issue of finance. So, so let's look at financing for a minute. Um, if caregiving is important as I say it is, if it is really the glue that holds families and society together, then why is 17% of GDP too much to pay? Why is 20% of GDP too much to pay? Plus the fact that if you had a system emphasizing care, you would get rid of the one third of, of that money that I just mentioned that goes to administrative costs and be able to use it for actual hands-on care from people. Hence, it might even not raise, rise to that level. But the issue is, what's important in our lives? What's really important? And when we look at our lives, you're, you're making a major commitment to your mother because you love her because that's centrally important to you. That's true of many, many families. That commitment, that central commitment should mean something with respect to our healthcare system. It should mean that you're gonna get the support that's gonna be there for good care so that you'll do the things you'll do, your mother will do the things she can do, but that there's gonna be a system of support for you, behind you. And we can't nice. say, oh, that's, un that's unavailable. We can't pay for that. That's nonsense. The Japanese pay for it. The Norwegians pay for it. The Danes pay for it. The Finns pay for it. There's no reason we can't pay for it. Well, we can't wait for the government to get their act together or for the medical profession to make... This is a, that, that's a huge shift in how they... Like a whole shi huge shift in focus. So what can people like myself do? Because what I, I've had to take my mom to various doctor's appointments. Right. For example, she had a sty under her eye, and it was so close to her eyeball when I took her to the urgent care the day after Christmas. Two different staffers, the I think she was a physician's assistant and then the administration person, called around to find an ophthalmologist to drain it. Right. And of course, the day after Christmas, there is no ophthalmologist working. So they said, you know, we think it's important that this be drained. We're going to send you over to the ER. You know, and I'm starting to look at my watch because, you know, mom's patience is pretty thin, right. understandably. You know, you can't explain to her why they're there because it doesn't stick. So we go to the ER. I give them the paperwork and I tell them, this is what we're here for. We've already been to the urgent care. She does not wait patiently. She gets very aggressive. So we need to take care of this sooner rather than later so that we don't have another problem. Yeah. And when I said those words to that gal, I watched her eyes glaze over like, yeah, 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 whatever. You just don't want to sit here and wait. Okay, partly that was true. So we're in the ER for over two hours. Mom has now missed her lunch. Right. And 
oh, there's nobody there to do it. So they were going to admit her and hopefully a physician's assistant was going to be able to drain it, but we were going to have to hold her down. And I'm like, forget this. I'm done. And we just left with a um, prescription for an antibiotic. I can understand understand completely. Oh, it gets better. Yeah. So the antibiotic did not reduce the size of the sty. It finally ruptured. So mom had a scheduled neurology appointment. So I thought, okay, well, I guess I won't do what I need to do this Monday. I took her to the eye doctor. The assistant tried to give her an eye exam. Now my mom's visual processing is kaput. It would not surprise me if she, you know, um, cognitively can't see, like, I think her eyes are fine, but her brain is broken, obviously. Um, and I just laughed and I said, well, this will be interesting. And I explained to him her visual processing is shot. We're here because of this sty that's now ruptured and they're just going through the process. And I'm like, really? So we go through that. They give us a topical antibiotic and they say, can you come back to the clinic tomorrow? And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I have things to do. This is the biggest problem for fam, like adult children, caregivers. Like I still work. Absolutely. I'm self-employed. So I have more flexibility. So she was also having pain with walking. We go to the urgent care because that was between the two appointments for what the hell? <laughs> We're already here. We might as well attend to this. That was a total joke. They had no idea how to deal with her. And she started getting very obstinate with them. And it was getting closer to her neurology appointment it was at three. And, you know, we'd, I'd picked her up at like 12.15. So, you know, I'd, she'd been run through the ringer. The best thing, we got to the neurologist by the end of the neurology appointment, mom was like highly obstinate, you know, no, I'm not going to sit in the wheelchair because it hurts to walk. I'm going to walk. And then she would just stand there. So the neurologist got to actually see a very big flavor of what was going on. That was my day. So I get home and I tell my husband, well, they want us to come back tomorrow to the eye clinic. And he's like, what are they going to do for her? It's ruptured. So they obviously aren't going to drain it. They're, you know, there's, it's a topical, topical antibiotic. You know, what else are they going to do? And I'm like, I don't know, but I feel like if I don't take her, I'm neglecting her needs. And if I do take her, it's just going to waste my time. Long story short, I did not take her. And a week later, the sty is probably two thirds smaller than it was a week earlier. So I'm like, okay, I did make the right decision. But I feel like I take her and I say, now she has advanced Alzheimer's. They'll ask her a question and I'll, I try to quietly answer correctly as best I can with the pain with walking, which was new. I had no idea what was going on. And I've watched doctors just totally, I won't even go to her general physician anymore. He's a very nice guy. He's got good bedside manner, but he treats me like the Uber driver. I'm just there to transport mom back and forth. And it's like, no, dude, she's the mental part of this patient. And I'm the physical, excuse me. She's the physical. I'm the mental Because you can ask her all kinds of questions. You're going to get all kinds of wacky answers. Like she told the neurologist, and it was hysterical. The neurologist was asking her, how many children do you have? And my mom said, well, I have one good one. And I thought, well, I hope I'm the one good one. There's two of us. (laughs) It was like, it was funny. But there was one day she told me, no, I don't have daughters. I I have sons. I'm like, nope. (laughs) Pretty sure my sister and I are girls. (laughs) So so I think... You know, what you've just laid out is the reality of caregiving, what it involves. And it speaks exactly to the points that I've made. And the question really is, so what can be done about this? And if you just think about it and analyze it, there are a lot of things that can be done. So first of all, your primary care doc, your general physician, has got to really do medicine differently. He's got to engage you as much as his mom. He's got to be taught how to handle families in the setting of dementia, okay? That's a very important part of what caregiving is about. Now, am I going to teach him that? Uh, no, you're not going to teach him. Okay. I'm just saying that. But, I've tried. But, but you tried, and I think that's admirable of you. But the, the, the reality, I'm trying to lay out what the realities are, that he's going to have to learn how to do this. The primary care, there are many primary care doctors who can do this, who do do it. It's unfortunate that he's not doing Secondly. You're pointing to waiting. That's what care is about. It's about waiting all the time. And that's another thing that we've got to think about the care system. 
that waiting is using up immense amounts of resources. Okay? It just happens to be your resources rather than the doctor's resources. So that when we reconfigure healthcare, we've got to reconfigure it in such a way that we reduce waiting times, that we don't allow, I would say two hours, by the way, of waiting time is not bad at all compared to the experiences that I've had. I mean, you know, I've been in emergency rooms where you wait for six, eight hours of time. I'm not that good at caregiver. You've got to transport her means that, you know, you need a home health aide to help you out in this. She needs a home health aide for this, that uh, you need assistance in being able uh, to do these things. This is not rocket science, figuring these things out. They're very, very straightforward. How they're going to happen, how they're going to happen depends so much on each location and setting, what kind of system you belong to, who the doctors are, who the nurses are, the kind of supports you have and the like. That's why we've got to start with the issue of quality care and replan things from there. But in the meantime, we can make certain demands. And the first demand that you are very clear on, and I strongly support, is the movement for family care requiring greater attention to the family carer. That in this instance, what the neurologist has to do is talk to you as well as to your mom. And what the, um, what the people in the emergency room have to do is to deal with you as well as with your mom. And to recognize that you're a crucial, the crucial component in your mom getting care. Okay? These, and they're not, not going to get anything from her. It's not like, you know, this is, <laughs> this is abstract knowledge that people can't understand. Okay? It's something you can explain and do something about. But what you need that you don't have is the clout to produce the change. So where is that clout going to come from? That's why I'm arguing for the importance of a moral movement for care. A movement of family care is making demands so that they can bring greater power to bear on these chaotic systems and something can be, can be done. I like being able to spark conversations, and I think this is an excellent episode to get people thinking differently, and hopefully people can you know join together with people like me and say, okay, let's start this movement, because this system stinks. Right. So that was, that was my whole point of wanting to talk to you today, so I appreciate it tremendously. Wonderful speaking to you. Well, you've made it to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for joining me. If you found this episode helpful and informative, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple iTunes. This is how new people will find us. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. All of our accounts are linked in the show notes. And as always, I will be in your ears again next Tuesday.